hard to believe, but we've been in the Gospel of John now for some 20 months, and we're coming down the home stretch. We can see the, <clears throat> I was going to say the light at the end of the tunnel, but that sounds like we've been somewhere dark. Well, we've been somewhere awesome. We, we can see the journey terminating before us. It looks like we're going to be done in about two months. We'll, we'll be talking soon about what we'll be doing after that. But we're, we're finishing this book with a series of passages and stories that, if you've grown up in the church, are probably super familiar to you. Here we have the, the trial of Jesus before Pilate. We're going to look at part one of that today. Then you have the crucifixion of Jesus, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection. So these are all things that, that even if we just had a peripheral relationship with the church or Christ in our life, where many, many of these stories are really, really familiar. But again, this is a great time to remind ourselves for why John is giving us these stories. He's giving us them not so that we can dominate ancient Bible history on Jeopardy one day, although if you ever make it to Jeopardy, I would expect you to dominate that category. But that's not why John has given it. He's given it, he's made this case over and over and over again. He's, he's given us these, these words, these stories, so that we may believe. Believe in what, you may say? You may be, may be new to this whole church thing or just kind of orbiting in a peripheral way to things that are spiritual. What, what do we mean by believe? John wants us to, to, to grab hold of the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he's the chosen Messiah, that he died for sins. And because of that, he's calling you to a decision. He's calling you and I to follow him, to trust him, to entrust our very lives to him. That's, that's, that's why we're here. Now, John's context in writing in the ancient world of 2,000 years ago is that, and this is not too dissimilar to, to our own culture but, but John and his readers lived in a culture where there was sort of a, a veritable pantheon of deities and religions. There was a deity and an idol for every season, every food, every occupation. And in the Roman Empire, all religions, all perspectives were welcome. You just needed to stay in your lane. Do you know what I mean by that? Whatever you believed was cool, just keep it personal Keep it private, keep it inclusive, keep it easy, and just say, Caesar is Lord, and you're all good. Now, some of that might sound a little bit familiar, because culturally, we have our own stay-in-your-lane spirituality, don't we? It just goes something like this, whatever you believe is great, just no truth claims, absolutely not. No authority No exclusivity, absolutely no restrictions on individuality or personal choice. Otherwise, you're good. But what we've come to see time and time again in the Gospel of John, folks, is that is not biblical Christianity. Tim Keller, I heard him say say this this week, and this is really, really good. He said, what makes Christianity unique among all the other world religions and philosophies, is that all of the world religions and philosophies are, are, are founded by a spiritual leader. 
Okay, whether that's Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or Joseph Smith or Mary Baker Eddy or on and on and on. And what the founder's job to do is to tell you how to get to God. In other words, heaven's here or enlightenment or another state of consciousness, depending on the particular religion. And the idea goes is the founder is telling you just do these particular things and this can be your goal. This is what you can achieve. But Christianity is something far, far radically different. See, Jesus says, I'm not here to show you the way. I am the way. Jesus says, it's not what you do to get to God. It's what I've done for you to get to God. See, that's, that's something radically different. That's something otherworldly. That's something that will simultaneously get you killed and will transform the world all at the same time. That's the history of the church. So this is where John is coming from. And in this passage, this trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate, John is going to shine the light on something that makes Christ entirely unique. So if John is going to make such a bold, audacious claim that believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and in his life have name, John is taking pain after pain after pain to show us why that is the case, what makes Jesus different, why Jesus isn't simply one other brand of cereal on the public's aisle for you to choose from in your pantheon of spiritualities, why, in fact, Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, the life to the Father. But the way John does this in this text is through what we typically call Yohahin irony. It just that's a fancy word for John-like irony. Now, now remember this this gospel's full of it. Now remember, in John chapter 9, Jesus heals the man born blind. And 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 this is an amazing miracle. And this man is not only physically seeing, but he's coming to see who Jesus is. He's trusting him. He wants to follow him. While at the same time, while he's had his spiritual, I'm sorry, his physical sight, sight restored, the Pharisees are having their spiritual sight taken away. The, the, the more this man can see, the less they can see in their hearts. Their hearts are hardened. And, and this is one of John's favorite ways to sort of highlight one thing by, by sort of emphasizing another. And that's what he does in this text today. See, John wants you and I to walk away this morning with a fresh, new, new, new in application, fresh, new renewal in who Jesus is as the sinless Savior. But the way that he does this is that he wants to kind of push in front of our face the overarching corruption and evil that is present in this passage. And as we get a starker view of that, and, and it is dark and it is grim, John just subtly but clearly slides these things in to say, but not Jesus, but not Jesus. Jesus is different. Jesus is sinless. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is, is righteous. 
and he's the only one who can save you. Now, back in 2002, President George W. Bush, in his State of the Union address, coined the term axis of evil, and I think he applied it to, to three countries, Iran, North Korea, Iraq. Well, well, here in this text, we have our own sort of axis of evil that John presents to us. And, and, and this axis is, is comprised of, first, the religious leaders, secondly, Pilate himself, and thirdly, the crowns. And we're going to sort of group all of this under this, this one heading, just kind of one point this morning, the sinless Savior. And this is a great, because as we enter, get ready to enter the Advent season, it's a great, great text that leads us into communion. It's a great text that reminds us why Jesus came to earth was to do exactly what he's doing in this text this morning. So let's dive in. Let's look at verse 28. It's kind of a narrative passage, so we're just going to kind of read it and comment as we go. It says that they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. That's literally praetorium. That's where Pilate was sort of set up shop to hear the judicial cases of the day. And typically you would come in and present your case before a pilot inside the praetorium, but that wasn't happening here. Pilate had to go out to them. And the reason, and it tells us here, is that the Jewish leaders refused to go into the house of a Gentile. You see, they believed that would make them ceremonially unclean. And this is, this is kind of a, a religious scruple. By the way, that law, that belief, it is, it is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. It was, a, it was a man-made tradition that the Jewish leaders sort of hoisted upon the people. But they believed that if they go into the house of a Gentile, they're going to be ceremonially unclean. And if they are ceremonially unclean, they are not going to be able to, to participate and lead in Passover, which is a big, which is a big no-no for them. That for them to miss Passover is kind of like for, for one of your pastors to miss Easter, not what you want to do, right? And so, so, they are, so, so, so they are very careful here. They are very scrupulous. They, they are very high-minded. Do, do you see what John's doing already here? They're very scrupulous. They're very religious. They're very ceremonial. All the while... They are asking a Gentile to murder an innocent man. Do you see that? On trumped up charges, on a farce of a trial, yet they're worried about being religious. See, see, see John is, is wanting to sort of put in front of us hypocrisy. See, hypocrisy is not just is not sinning. The Christians get a bad rap for that. Hypocrisy is pretending not to sin and then to sin. Here they are, they're presenting this outward face of everything is great and God loves us and is honored with us and inside their hearts are corrupt. They are plotting the death of an innocent man. Now go back to the text. It says that they, they arrived there early in the morning. And that's, that's an important Seemingly insignificant, but it's actually a very important detail. Because what would happen is that Roman rulers would begin their day at, day, at daybreak, at dawn, 6 a.m. And they would work till about noon, 
And then they would, I don't know what they would do the rest of the day, like eat grapes or I don't know what they would do. But, but, but that was the work schedule. And if you were someone who had a case before the court, you would line up to have your case heard. But if you wanted to, to be first in line, which these religious leaders did, you better be there early. Now, the question is, why were they in such a rush? Why were they in such a rush to convene a, a trial in the middle of the night? Why were they in such a rush to get to, to, to Pontius Pilate at the beginning of daybreak and to get this thing going? Well, it's because of Passover, of course. It's because of the Sabbath. See, they weren't allowed to execute someone on the Sabbath. Oh, no. Better to, better to unjustly murder them the day before, right? They're, 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 they're scheming. They're conniving. They're pushing this thing through. They wanted the murder to be over before they went to church. It reminds me of a, of a scene in The Godfather when, when Michael Corleone is, has taken over the, the leadership of the family, and he's decided to eliminate all the rivals, anyone who could possibly take him down. And there's these two poignant scenes in the movie where, where it's, it's, it's the Lord's Day, Sunday, they're in the church, and they're dead, they're, I'm sorry, they're baptizing their baby. That's what you get for baptizing, I shouldn't go there. Okay, anyway, they're baptizing their baby. And, and there's all this pomp and ceremony and circumstance and religiosity, while at the very same moment, all of his goons are going around and they're showing them knock off one person after another. It's a perfect, perfect picture of what we're talking about here. Now, and I just love the way John slide this in, what, just subtly, but just, it's there and guys, this is just an encouragement just to, to get hold of the Word of God. And sometimes it just it doesn't seem like it's giving up anything to your soul. But just read and read and pray and pray. And this is just a great little detail that just sort of emerged. Again, we're in verse 28. We've got like 20 verses. To go. Don't worry, don't worry. Ver, ver, verse 28. It says, then they led Jesus. Now that word, to lead, means to drive like an animal, specifically like a sheep. See, the sheep, when they're being led to slaughter, because they're a sheep, goes quietly, submissively, nonchalantly, because they don't know what awaits them. See, John is, is pointing out something to us. While this corruption reigns, and while, while Jesus would have been perfectly within his, his rights as a man, as a human, as a perfect human being to say, stop, stop, this isn't right, this is unjust, I've done absolutely nothing wrong, he goes submissively, and we, and, and we can't help but think about John one twenty nine. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, the shepherd has become a sheep, and he is laying down his life for the very people who are giving him up. Verse 29 says, Pilate comes out to them, and he says, what charge do you bring? And this is, this is, an, this is official language. This is Pilate saying, 
well, come to order, or, um, you know, all rise, come to order, or what case, what's the charge here? This kind of begins the, the, the legal proceedings. And typically, they would, the, the accuser would bring a set of charges against the accused, a, a set of specific charges. It's interesting, the Jews don't have that here, because there is no such charges. They sort of lump it all under one, under one big label, and they said, listen, <clears throat> if this man were not doing evil, evil, <clears throat> why in the world would we have brought him here? You know, in our culture, it is, and this, both sides of the political aisle are guilty of this, it's the realm of social media. Something that's worse than, than, than true, specific charges against someone in our culture is just what label you get slapped with. You can get slapped with a label that's not based upon any particular truth or not, and it can destroy people's lives. Happens everywhere. It's the way of the world. It's the way of the corrupt human heart. They, they say, this man's been doing some evil things intentionally vague, covers up the fact that they had nothing specific. It's just, it's just slander. But all the while, <clears throat> Jesus is being led. Verse 31, Pilate looks at the whole thing. He knows it's absurd. It's ridiculous. And he says, well, then judge him yourself. Now, what, what is Pilate really saying there? That's just code for you want to kill him, you kill him. Go for it. <laughs> I mean, I don't want anything to do with this because as Pilate makes clear, and we'll get to this in a minute, looking down in verse 38, and this ought to be just a, a banner over this passage, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Pilate knows this. Pilate says, you, you want to do your killing? Do your own killing. To which they say in verse 32, but, but we, we can't kill him. Now, a little background here will be helpful, I think. Remember, Israel was an occupied territory. The Romans had conquered most of the known world. And in typical fashion, because they couldn't be everywhere, every place all the time, Rome was obviously the, the capital of the empire. They would send out prefects or garrisons of soldiers to sort of keep the peace in a particular province. And it was Roman philosophy, and this is where we get this idea of the, of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, is they actually gave a ton of leeway to local populations. You could worship like you wanted, you could do your cultural things, they did not want to intervene, they didn't want to, to intrude, they, they, they truly wanted people to live at peace just on one condition. Well, I, probably more than that, but you honored Caesar, you obeyed Rome, and you did not kill anyone. See, it, it, was, it was Roman policy because they knew that one of the central tenets of a civil authority is that you have the, the right to, to judge and try and put someone to death. And Rome says, you can't do that. Only, only we can do that. And so... Pilate had a major responsibility here. It was Pilate's job to keep 
the peace. Only Romans could execute someone. And so what we have here are are two parties who both need something desperately from the other. Do you see that? The Jews needed Pilate to kill Jesus. Pilate needed the Jews to be at peace because because here's, here's what would happen. And and history tells us this. Actually, Pontius Pilate was a brutal ruler. He was not wise. He was actually getting in trouble with Rome all the time. And and what would happen is that he would do something to exacerbate the population, and then Rome would sort of bring the hammer down upon him. So he knows, historically, he is on a very short rope. Rome doesn't care, excuse me, what happens in Jerusalem. What happens in Jerusalem stays in Jerusalem, right? They don't care. Just, we don't want to hear anything from you. It's kind of like when you go, when, when you bring your babysitter over to watch your kids. What's your main goal while you're away? What, like, what's, like, like expectations go really down, right? Okay, so, so like, like, it's been a successful babysitting run if no one dies, okay? If no one is maimed, if the fire department is not, house is not on fire, fire department is not, you, you get this, Right? The babysitter otherwise can do whatever they want. Food and drinks and iPad doesn't really matter. Just, just as long as we don't hear from you, okay? That was, the, that was the policy for Rome. But here, in verse 40, we see that the Jews are working this to their advantage. They are leveraging the, the people, the unrest of the people. And, and you see sort of a how would we say this? They're holding Pilate hostage. It's sort of blackmail. They're, they're saying, hey, Pilate, give us what we want. We want this man's head on a platter. This is a, a mob. It's a corrupt mob. It's a corrupt religious leadership. It's a corrupt crowd. We say, well, well we, we see the corruption of the of, of, of Pilate, we see the corruption of these religious leaders. What about the crowds? Aren't these the same people that were crying Hosanna four days before? Very interesting, isn't it? As they were looking for Jesus to come and they were shouting Hosanna to the son of David and he was coming into Rome, what, coming into Jerusalem, what was their expectation? Now, this was a man who was going to rule. This was the man who was going to put down the Romans. But we know from the Gospel of John as the week wound on, and it became clear that, as Jesus says in this passage, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not a king like you think I am, Pilate. As, as this begins to dawn on them, they become very disillusioned. They become very disappointed. And this spurs their hostility, their hate. And they say, no, no, no. We don't want Jesus released to us. We want Barabbas. And if you look down... In verse 40, where it says, Barabbas was a robber. Robber, the word literally means thief or insurrectionist. So what would a thief or insurrectionist do? I'm not totally sure. It can't be good. No, they would actually go around inciting riot, violence, killing people. The crowds most certainly knew that this is who this man was. But they said, give us Barabbas, not Jesus. Now, what is the point of all this? Why why do we spend so much time there? See, John's point is that 
everyone in this story shares sin and guilt with the execution of Jesus. They are united by their virtual hatred of Jesus. The the enemy of my enemy is my friend. See, guilt and corruption are everywhere. This is sort of injustice unhinged. Everywhere except where? In the person who's being executed. He is being willingly, submissively led. John's giving us all this detail for us to know there was no insurrection. There is no political unrest. There is no valid charge. This is a man being led to the slaughter because that's what has to happen for the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Now, here's the question. What is John wanting you and I to do with that? The as he, as he spotlights the sinfulness of man in contrast to the sinlessness of the Savior, what is John wanting you and I to do in this? Is, is he wanting us to stand in judgment? Is, is, he, is he wanting us to pull our kids from the Christmas pageant because they got assigned the role of pilot or something like that? I mean, is, 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 is that the point here? No, I think it's very subtle. But John is inviting us to locate ourselves in this story. Who in this story are you most like? Go back to earlier in chapter 18. This this whole chapter has been a, a chapter of just utter unfaithfulness, corruption. It started with the disciples. Then it went to Peter. Then it went to these religious leaders. Then it went to Pilate. Then it went to the crowds. Who are you and I most like in this passage? And if you say Jesus, you've missed the point. How many times have I been hypocritical or you've been hypocritical? Where we tell our kids to do one thing and we do another. Or, or, or we have a, a show of religiosity just because that's what we're supposed to do. But all the while, there's just anger and corruption going on in our hearts. How many of us have colluded with someone else in order to, to, for no other reason than simply to hold on to our power, to hold on to our position, to get ahead? See, I think John wants us to, to use this passage to take some spiritual inventory. And as we do, we're going to find out that our hearts are full of hypocrisy and duplicity and cowardice. And as we begin to realize that, as we let the truth of who we are really begin to speak to us, then we will understand anew, just as we sing, it was our sin that nailed him there. See, this is, if you can say it this way, an invitation on behalf of John to see our own corruption and sinfulness. And, and, and there is value in this. Let me just, well, let me say this. I've been in the middle of just a season personally where I've wanted to understand a little bit better why I do what I do. Do you ever have that feeling of, 
I keep making the same mistakes and doing the same sins over and over. What's, what's going on? Why is this? Why am I like Paul in Romans 7? I do what I don't want to do. And so that's necessarily taken me in some areas of, of kind of popping up the hood and saying, well, what about my background? And what about my experiences? And, and what about some of my family of origin? How, 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 are, how are all these things kind of coming to bear, which sort of result in this corruption that I see in my heart? And by the way, I commend that process to you. I do. I, I think there are some people who can become over-therapized, over-psychologized. But I think for every person that does that, there's a hundred who aren't nearly self-aware enough. And as we begin to pop the hood and look in our hearts and see the corruption or our background, it gives the opportunity of God's grace of repentance to go deep into our hearts. That's an important truth. But it's not the most important truth of this passage. It's not the decisive one. See, there is an invitation to see our own corruption, but there's also an invitation to see the perfections of Christ. See, that's, that's the whole point. You've got to see your corruption to get to Christ, but if you don't get to Christ, your corruption will devour you. Both are absolutely necessary and in that order. And one of the ways that, that John extends this invitation to us is this exchange that Jesus has with Pilate. Go back for a second, and this is just fascinating. In verse 30, so Pilate entered the headquarters again, called Jesus, said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says something interesting there. He says, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? In other words, Pilate, is this what you're reading off that list of phony, bogus indictment charges that I'm the king of the Jews? Or Pilate, is there actually something in you that wonders? Is there, is there actually something that you're grappling with? See, the, the nature of this, of this conversation when Jesus said, are you asking of your own accord or were you told about this, is, I think, the wooing of Pilate. Jesus is standing before him, and there's corruption all around. There's corruption in his own heart. But he says, but, but, but Pilate, what do you think? What do you say? Jesus says, Pilate, I am the truth. I've come in to bear the world to bear witness about this truth. Pilate, what say you? And we have his response. He says, what is truth? What is truth? That, that, that's Pilate's response. The question this morning is, what is yours? As you come face to face with your own corruption in your heart, which is so hard to face, there's an invitation to do that, but there is a stronger invitation this morning for Oaks to run to Jesus. As you examine yourself and you find out what there is dark and it's ugly and it's corruptible, John says there's something even more true, that Jesus is the sinless one. That Jesus lived the perfect life. Jesus went as a lamb to the slaughter in order to die for your sin 
and for mine. And so what does John tell us this morning? Look to Him. Look to Him. Why we celebrate Lord's Supper every week? Because we want to remind ourselves we never, ever get past the need for the gospel. Whatever is going on in your life, and it may be complex, it may be complicated, the roots of the corruption may have consequences to them, but I do know that there is one foundational solution, and that is to come to him. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. I, that, that resonates in my heart because sometimes I just feel like sin is like the ankle weights around my legs as I'm trying to run a marathon. And I'm always looking at the ankle weights. Like, wh- why are you here? What, where did you come from? And, and that, that's an that's an important part, but it's not the most important part. What does the writer of Hebrews says? And let us run with the endurance, the race that is set before us, what? Looking to Jesus. Four Oaks this morning, wherever you are, far from God, in the midst of discovering maybe this for the first time this morning, the corruption in your own heart, maybe for the first morning, this, for, this morning, for the first time, hearing, hearing about the corruption of your heart, that's just that's a new category. What, whatever it is, wherever you are, the invitation that John presents to us through Jesus is, come to me. I'm going to ask our, our leaders to come forward and to prepare to serve our Lord's table this morning. And as they do, let me just ask you, for you to just take a minute or so and do some spiritual inventory in your own heart. To think about this passage, to think about the leaders, to think about Pilate, to think about the crowd. But mostly, mostly, I want you to think about Jesus.